Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I'm sitting down with Sean Swarner. He is the epitome of someone who never gives up and continues to motivate and inspire others to do the same. With only one functioning lung, a prognosis of 14 days to live, and being in a medically induced coma for a year, Sean is the first cancer survivor to stand on top of the world, Mount Everest. Sean has broken through defined human limitation in order to redefine the way the world views success. Sean was diagnosed with two deadly different and unrelated forms of cancer, one at the age of 13 and again at the age of 16. After an incredibly poor prognosis and being read his last rites, Sean astounded the medical community when he survived both these brutal diseases. He realized that after defeating cancer twice, no challenge would ever be too great, no peak too high. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Sean, but before I do, I just want to remind you, if you're looking for some great cancer prevention tips, go to revivewellness.com. Com. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com and click on free gift. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited for this too. And, and, you know, before you start recording, you said you were in Cleveland. So I'm Ohio native right here. I love it. <laughs> Go Bucks. Actually, no. um, <laughs> it was it was difficult growing up in Ohio and being a Michigan fan. Oh, you're a Michigan fan because yeah. I and went to Ohio State. So I'm sorry. I went to Ohio State. So that's a little tough for me. Oh, no, I, I heard you. I was just apologizing. <laughs> oh, I can't believe it. Yeah, no, actually, um, my family. My mom's side of the family, they were personal friends with Woody Hayes, and Bo Schembechler was my second cousin. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I, ha- yeah, I, I bleed yellow and blue. I get it. Okay. Can't be <laughs> upset with you then. Can't be upset with you. <laughs> so first, I'd just love to hear about your story, how you grew up um, in Ohio, and you know what you were like as a young, young kid. Absolutely. And I, I, I grew up with the normal childhood up to, up to about 13, but you know, I was, I was your normal, I guess, quote unquote, normal teenage kid growing up in Midwest Ohio where my, in Willard, Ohio, I mean, the population, maybe 5,000, it hasn't changed much since I was born. And my backyard was a cornfield or a bean field, depending on the season. So not much has changed. I mean, I would, I would get together with with the kids on the on the track team in the high school, the uh, track team and the cross country team, and we would TP the uh, the coach's house 
you know, and, and we would run out when his motion sensor lights would turn on. That was that was before, you know, toilet paper was was hard to find and it was worth more than its weight in gold. <laughs> Back then it was it was fun and it was, you know, a normal life until a layup in basketball literally changed everything. Um, I uh, was 13, eighth grade, knee injury from the basketball actually stuck me in the hospital. And uh, initially they, they thought I had pneumonia. And it's, it's incredibly difficult to cure cancer by sucking on a nebulizer. So I wasn't getting any better. And they took me to Columbus, Ohio. Um, so I think if you drive right down, was it 70? 77? Oh, 71? 71, that's it. Yeah. 71. Yep, yep, right down 71. Um, you go through Mansfield, where I actually learned to ski at snow trails. Um, and... Uh, I eventually, as a 13-year-old, was diagnosed with advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. And they told my parents, your 13-year-old has three months to live. So they, 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 I, they was basically given an expiration date of three months. <sighs> and is that something that you knew? Did they tell you that? My, earlier that year, my mom's, stepmother so i guess my step-grandmother um she actually passed away from cancer and my parents didn't want me to associate cancer with death so they didn't tell me that i, I had cancer they told me i had hodgkin's disease and i was sick so i think but also looking back at it as a 13 year old i don't think i really would have understood the ramifications of, of being ill with cancer yeah, I don't, I don't think it, it would have really, if, if I got, let's say I got diagnosed now with Hodgkin's lymphoma, I know what cancer is. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I, w- I would be looking at it com- from a completely different perspective. So I think they, from their angle, they, they were, they were protecting me. They didn't want me to have that mental stigma of cancer equals death, you know, because back, in, back when I was treated, a lot of people didn't make it. Mm-hmm. I think that was just so smart of them. So smart. And what did you need to do then? What was your next step? You find this out and yeah, then yeah. what? They, um, we, we kind of sat down and it, it never registered with me like, oh my God, what am I going to do? It was, okay, that's what it is. What are we going to do? You know, so we, we plotted forward. Um, didn't really change my diet too much because I, I would always eat healthy. I mean, every Friday night, you know, we would have like family night where we put little, little like finger food in the, in the oven. Um, it would maybe order pizza, but that was once a week. I would, I, I never didn't like broccoli. I don't think I've always loved broccoli. Uh, always ate healthy. So the diet didn't change initially until I started losing weight because of the treatment. Then the doctor put me on an all you could eat diet. So I would add like protein powder to my pancakes in the morning. I would make my own omelets. I would make shakes. I would try to bulk back up, back up, put some weight on um, until he put me on prednisone, which then boom, exploded me up. I was 60, 70 pounds overweight, you know, in, in the process of a few months. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So for a 13 year old kid, you know, I mean, your friends are going out or, well, probably around town and, and meeting girls and doing all that kind of stuff. What was that like for you? Well, it was, it, it was difficult being left out. Um, 
and and at the time when teenagers their hormones are kicking in they're growing hair in unusual places on their bodies i was losing my hair and i i, I was behind everybody in in i guess the mature uh, maturation um but i i think looking at it now it helped me in a good way because i, I didn't get caught up in those petty things I didn't get caught up in trying to be in the popular crowd or the popular clique. It was just, it was just me and people had to accept me for who I was. And I would explain to the people in the eighth grade and, and freshman year in high school, you know, I'm, I'm like this because I'm going through cancer. You know, it's, it's not my fault. And I think growing up in a small town, everybody knew everyone else's business anyhow. You know, I got a lot of support from, through it. So I think that helped a, a tremendous amount as well. Oh, that's great. So, you know, eighth grade could be tough, you know, kids could be mean, they can make fun of people, but you, it was okay for you. It it was. And I I think it was because of the communication between my parents and the teachers and then the teachers to the students. So when I was in the hospital, I wasn't in school. And I think that's when, obviously I didn't know this at the time, but I think that's when they actually explain to the classes, hey, Sean's out because of this, 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 and this, you know, and when he comes back, you know, we'll just welcome him back with open arms and do what we can to support him. So I think it, that really helped, you know, just, just educating the, 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 my, my peers about what was going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure it makes them more compassionate, you know? Very much so. I mean, in, in, I was uncomfortable because I was wearing a wig. You know, the, the first time around, 60 pounds overweight. And I remember being at, uh, I was a swimmer for years, years and years. And I remember being at the uh, the summer swim league where I, I just kind of visited. And I was, I mean, I was, I was undefeated in, in swimming. And I remember hearing some people saying that, who's, who's that new kid? <laughs> you know, it looks, looks like Sean, he acts like Sean. You know, and, and it was like, that. you know, it, it is me. And they, people, people, my own friends couldn't even recognize me. But again, I think having that education there with telling people, hey, this is, this is what's going on. So they knew why. And I think that made a, a tremendous difference. Ah, uh, absolutely. So tell me what happened next for you? You went through treatment. How long was it? What was your? It was about a year, year and a half. Um, and, and I was going in. I was, I was placed for mission about a year and a half and I was quote unquote normal for about a year and going in for a checkup for the first cancer. They found a second cancer completely unrelated to the first one. Uh, it was called Aspen's sarcoma the second time around. In fact, no one's ever had Hodgkin's and Aspen's before. I was the first one. And as far as I know, I'm, I'm still the only one. Um, not that I was, you know, knock on wood, I'm still okay, but not that I was going for any sort of cancer record or anything like that. <laughs> It just so happened that they, they found a tumor on a, uh, a, a routine checkup, you know, on an x-ray. So tell me, what did that do to your mindset? I mean, what were you thinking? Well, this time around, I was 16. And I think I understood a lot more than I did when I was 13. I, I knew I was going to lose my friends. I knew I was going to lose my hair. I knew my life was going to be put on pause. I knew everything was going to change. 
but I also knew I was going to do what I had to do to move forward. And the second time around, I, I understood more of, of what death meant, <coughs> excuse me, and I, I didn't want to die, but I was more focused on living as opposed to not dying. And I think that was one of the key factors. That's huge. I mean, that just came to you. Well, it actually, it actually came to me when I was 13 going through the first cancer and I was on the, the bottom of the shower floor weeping pulling chunks of hair out of the drain, thinking about my life. I mean, at 13 years old, I, I developed a different perspective on, on how to, to live life. And it's, it was going after what I wanted, not the avoidance of what I didn't want. Incredible. And then I also read that you, like you had a very low percentile chance of living. I mean, they gave you what, a couple weeks to live? They gave me, yeah, they gave me 14 days to live the second time around. And the, the, so I was, I was given an expiration date the second time and the chances of me surviving both of the cancers is equivalent to winning the lottery four times in a row with the same numbers. That's so incredible. So you go through treatment again and tell me, I mean, obviously you're okay. So I'm good. I'm good now. Yeah. So I was given 14 days to live and that was, you know, 30 years ago. So I'm, I'm very fortunate. And, and I went through three months of chemo, a month of radiation, 10 more months of chemo. And believe it or not, the, the treatments were so harsh because no one's ever had these two cancers. They, they blasted my body. They were so harsh. They put me, every time I was inpatient, they put me in a medically induced coma. So I essentially, I don't remember being 16 except for that month of radiation. I can't imagine how your parents felt during that time, how they couldn't go through that twice. Yeah. Looking back at it, you know, I'm, I'm 46 now. Looking back at it, I'm thinking to my, myself, my parents must have just gone through hell. You know, I, I can't even imagine what they went through because there's nothing they could do. Mm. And it sounds like they gave you such good support and and didn't really tell you all the bad stuff. So, you know, because you're one, you're such a positive person. I mean, do you think that comes from the way you were raised or you think it's just, this is how you are? I, I think it's, it's a combination of a bunch of things. I, I think it's, it's choice and it starts every, every day I wake up, you know, I, I wake up, I open my eyes, I instantly turn off my alarm clock because if, if you, if you constantly day after day, day in, day out, hit snooze, you're subconsciously telling yourself, you're not excited about waking up. You're not excited about the day. So I, I, every time my alarm clock goes off, you know, day in, day out, I turn it off immediately and I roll out of bed. I don't sit up in bed. This might sound weird. I don't sit up in bed, swing my feet over and stand up. I literally like slide out of bed <laughs> and push myself up off the ground, which I, I think gets me going. Um, but the attitude came from my parents and a, a, a conscious choice to, to make life how I want it to be. You know, I, I, I know where I am in my life right now is because of a series of seemingly mundane choices and decisions I've made in my past. You know, every little decision in my past brought me to where I am now. And I know that's my responsibility and I own that 100%. So people who are looking to, to blame others for the situation, the only person to blame is the same person that's in the mirror. 
because mm-hmm. the other people in, in your life aren't responsible for your situation because if if you're blaming others, then you're allowing them to have that much influence over you. So I decided a long time ago, like I said, when I was 13, I'm going to focus on what's important to me. I'm going to focus and build my personal core values because at the end of the day, I'm the one who has to be happy. If I'm not happy, then I can't help make other people happy or, or bring some joy to their lives. So I think it's my parents teaching me that, but also a conscious choice every morning I wake up. That is so, I love that. I mean, it's funny. So I, I watched, well, it was a Sean Swerner few days. <laughs> so I watched True North and it was amazing, by the way, but we'll get into that. Um, but I also listened to a talk you did, I think it was for CancerCon. And, you know, you were saying that every day you say this is going to be the best day or you, I don't know exactly if that's Crazy the word you day. use. This is going to be the best day ever. And I have a journal and it has intentions in it. And so every day since I saw that, I've been writing in my intention part, this is going to be the best day ever. And I am telling you, it's a game changer. I mean, you knew this, but. Well, I mean, that's first of all, thank you so much. You know, I really appreciate the support and, and True North, it's it's on Amazon and they, the production company did an amazing job on making my expedition to the North Pole look somewhat tolerable um <laughs> you know they captured some amazing stuff but you're you're right because if if you think about it how much how many people do you suppose wake up in the morning and turn on the news it has to be 80 90 percent of the population for sure and how and how much of the news is negative 99 percent of it and you do that day in, day out, you're literally programming your brain to be negative. Even, the, even though you, you tell yourself, oh, yeah, but I look for the good parts. I, I do. No, your, your brain is still being programmed to be negative, to expect bad things to happen. But if, as soon as you, and, and you do this day in, day out, day in, day out, you know, there, there's that old saying, you are what you eat, but you are what you consume. So if you're not careful, your brain will be programmed for you. But if you wake up every morning, day in, day out, and you're positive, write down the affirmation. Because I, you know, I have a journal myself. Because I, I, I recently just put together an online program to help people with that, the Summit Challenge. Love right? it, yes. And the the one from this morning was today. I will see opportunities, not obstacles. It is my choice. That is fantastic. So that's in your group program. It, it is, yeah. Just the, the summitchallenge.com. And then what, what at the at the end of the day, there's also an evening bookend. So it's called a, the first challenge is called a bookend. In the morning, you bookend your day on a positive note. In the evening, you bookend your day on a positive note. As opposed to waking up and watching the news and going to bed and watching the news, you're, cha- you're literally changing the synaptic connections in your brain to be more optimistic, more open. And you're making more synaptic connections in your left prefrontal cortex. You know, when I was going through cancer, my friend gave me a journal and and she said, write five things you're grateful for every day. And I did it. And I feel like it just helped so, so much. Um, You know, some days were tough, as you know, and I might, maybe I used it, you know, a little bit as a journal saying what's going on, but then I always ended up on a positive, what I was grateful for, for that day. And to this day, I love to look back at it. 
you know. And it, and, it, and it does reprogram your brain because your evening bookend right here, I am grateful for blank that happened today. Five things right there. So we're on the I love it. Oh, that's great. I knew I liked you for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So you're all finished and then you decide, I want to climb Mount Everest. (laughs) What? So tell me about that. (laughs) So how Everest came about was, well, in college, I I was Belushi from Animal House and and I, I moved on from that. Um, went to grad school. I wanted to become a, a psychologist for cancer patients. Figured everything I've been through, I, I know the ins and the outs of everything that's going to happen, except I didn't really look in the mirror and ask myself those deep questions. I didn't understand what it meant to me. And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still dealing with that. Anybody who goes through anything traumatic, you, you, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and not necessarily ask why, because you may never know why but what it means to you and you have a choice on how you want to, to come out on the other end of trauma. And I, I just wanted to literally use the highest mountain in the world to, to give back and scream hope and to help people understand that if a guy was, uh, who, who once had two, two terminal cancers, who was given three months to live, 14 days to live, who was in a coma for a year of his life, if, if he can go and climb Mount Everest with, with one functioning lung, you know, anything's possible. If you, if you believe it's possible and put in the work. So you had radiation and that's what happened. Your lung was damaged. Right. So yeah, there's a, a lot of people think I have my lung removed. There's, there was so much radiation. There's really no oxygen transfer anymore because of, of the scar tissue. And also because of that radiation treatment, I have a long-term side effect. I just, I was just diagnosed with my third cancer. I had surgery and had it taken out. Now, is that, was that a skin cancer? Cause I thought on your social media, I, I saw you post something. Yep. That was skin cancer. And they think it was a long-term side effect from the radiation. I get a lot of those too, which is really interesting. Um, so how did you feel? You know, do you still get real nervous? I'm sure it brings back memories, of course. Well, I, I go in I go in once a year for my checkup. And for the longest time, I, I for the longest time I got super nervous, you know, super scared. And then I realized, why am I getting nervous or scared? in letting a word change how I feel. You know, a six, I was doing spelling it out. A six letter word, why am I giving the ability to that six letter word to control my emotions? It's a word. It's not a thing that's happened. Yes, it's something that happened in the past, but why is it gonna happen again? I have no control over that sometimes, you know, if. Obviously, if I'm smoking three packs a day from from my life, I'm probably going to get lung cancer. Yeah, but I'm doing everything I can to prevent that. So I realized that it's it's a word, and it's my relationship with that word. You know, it's it's not the actual word itself that makes me nervous. It's not saying cancer that makes me nervous. It's how I react to it. Again, going back to my responsibility, it's my responsibility to take control of my emotions and my feelings. And I decided a few years ago, I'm not letting it have control over me anymore. 
I love that. I mean, just like you say, it's a choice. And, and I know when I work with a lot of cancer survivors, they get so scared when there's a scan and all that stuff. And it's so understandable, but what you are saying makes so much sense. And I think that it's going to help so many people when they listen to this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, especially like there were, there were times before, I don't know, maybe five, 10 years ago when I was nervous about my, my, my scans, which I still get, get nervous, but I don't let it control me. But there were, there were times where I'd, I'd sneeze and I'd, Oh God, I have cancer. No, that's not what it is. You know, it, it's, that's just not the way the human body works. We need to work on this. You know, the doctors and everything have worked on our bodies, but we need to work on our minds. And we need to understand that we are in control and we always have a choice in how we react in any situation. So tell me a little bit about this first climb to Mount Everest. I know it's probably a lot, you know, just to summarize, how did it feel for you? What was it like? How long did it take? I was going to say it was really cold Um, (laughs) and covered in snow. It's well, first of all, Mount Mount Everest is it's at an altitude where jumbo jets level off and fly. So it's over 29,000 feet high. And to climb the mountain, it takes a month and a half. And the reason it takes a month and a half is because you have to establish different camps going up the mountain. And what you do is you essentially go up with an empty backpack, drop off stuff, and go back to base camp with a, or you go up with a full backpack and you come back down with an empty backpack and you fill your pack up, go up the next day. But also spending time in altitude, what happens is because there's less oxygen, there's less pressure. So the oxygen, you know, the molecules are, are spread far apart. Being in altitude, what happens is your body actually starts producing more red blood cells and hemoglobin to be more efficient in altitude. So if we left right now from where both of us are and we were just all of a sudden, poof, magically appeared on top of Everest, we would probably be dead within five to 10 minutes because our our bodies couldn't function without the oxygen and our brains couldn't function. We would essentially go brain dead. Um, But what happens in altitude is your body manufactures those red blood cells and hemoglobin to be more efficient up there so you don't die. I mean, there's a place just past it's 26,000 feet and up it's literally called the death zone and, and that's where the body just melts away it it, the, it, it deteriorates in that altitude but were you re- scared oh i'm sorry no no no, no that's, that's fine I, you know because i think about cancer and you know how traumatic that could be and how scary and then you're doing something just but, but this was voluntary yes right so that's the difference. Right. And, and that's, that's one of the things where, you know, when I'm climbing, I, I think of all the people who are fighting for their lives. And when, I'm, when, when I encounter something, like say for the North Pole, for example, when I was climbing, to, was skiing to the North Pole at True North, I could have always picked up the satellite phone and say, okay, I'm done. I give up. You know, I'll come back next year. People who are fighting for their lives battling cancer they can't pick up their cell phone and talk to the doctor and say you know yeah I, i'm good I'll, I'll i'll come back next next year it, it doesn't work that way so i think of all the people who are battling and i hope they think of me when i'm battling you know struggling through the elements but i get my hope and inspiration from them and the entire time i'm climbing on all these adventures i actually have a flag that has names of people touched by cancer in my always in my chest pocket close to my heart 
you know, except for the one for um, True North, which I won't explain that one to anybody. And let, they have to go check it out because it was a flag that was, you know, what would you say, it was six and a half feet, maybe by four feet, thousands of names on it. That was um, amazing. But that was that was the reason why I wanted to to get to the top, to make a difference in maybe one person's life. Well, you sure are making a difference. So tell me, how did you feel when you made it? I mean, did you break down? I would assume. Absolutely. Oh, I, I wept like a baby. <laughs> I collapsed in my hands and knees and I, I lost it. And looking back at it, which is a, a huge mistake because in, in that altitude with that cold and that dry, the, just the moisture from my eyeballs went up to my, the inside of my glasses and they frosted over. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, but I, I wrapped that flag around the top of the world. And I remember calling radio, sending a radio message to my brother who was at base camp. He got on the satellite phone and called mom and dad. And he said, at this moment in time, you have a son who's standing on top of the world. Incredible. That was cool. That is so cool. And then I thought to myself, well, crap, I have to go back down. Right. You forget about that part. Yeah. So I do at least. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I think it's because of all the documentaries, you know, even with true North, all the documentaries, mountain climbing, all these expeditions, these adventures, they get to the destination and all of a sudden they're like, you know, that's, that's the end. But how do they get home? Uh. Incredible. So it took how long? I mean, to get down. It, it took a month and a half to climb going up and establishing those camps. It took me a day and a half to get back to base camp. Wow. <laughs> wow. And then you decide that you are going to climb the seven summits, the highest point of each continent. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, that... It, it, it kind of, I don't want to say it seemed logical because that would be crazy talk, but it, was, it seemed logical. I started off with the big one and I wanted to, to do the rest of them. And I took a flag to the top of each one of those continents as well. I, I started off with Kilimanjaro, which I, I run a, a trip up every year as a fundraiser for a cancer charity. And we pay for a, cancer, a, a survivor's trip every year. You know, all expenses covered to go up the highest mountain in Africa. We do a seven-day trip up Kilimanjaro, and we go on a four-day safari in the Serengeti, which is beautiful. And then it's the responsibility of that survivor to raise funds for next year's survivor. Um, anyone can go. And we actually, we're looking for three more people right now. Really? So if you know anybody, yeah, we need three more people to do it. I've been up there. This will be my 21st summit of Kilimanjaro. And our success rate is double that of the, of the mountain's average. Seriously, because yeah. of your all uh, your coaching and all that, I, I don't want to say it's it's because of me, um, but I guess that is the, the common denominator. <laughs> <But> That's okay. <laughs> it's, it's it's because of how the it's because of how the people are on our trip. Um, so, for example, before we leave, I send out a, a quick questionnaire and. The main, the main question I'm looking at is how people are motivated. And it could be the tough love. Like, hey, you're never going to make it up there. Or the people who they, they write, you know, they, they need the, that type of encouragement or whatever type of encouragement works for them. 
on summit night, when I see that person struggling, I'll go up there and, and encourage them the exact way they need to be encouraged. So it could be, hey, remember why you're here. Or, hey, you, you've trained hard for this. you got this. Let's go, go, go. Or, hey, you're never going to make it. Remember all those naysayers? They're right. You know, whatever it might be for somebody to get motivated, I remember what they told me and how they're, motiv- how they're best motivated. So I think that might be one thing. But it's, it's also because of the camaraderie we have. Everybody who's been on the trips before, from you know, 2020, 2019, 2018, each one of those groups, they're still friends. So I think oh. that's, that's what it is. Ah, oh, that sounds so great. So you're, when are you doing this? Um, July 24th. So the last week of August, uh, last week of July and the first week of August. Now, you know, it's so interesting because I talk to a lot of cancer survivors and I, and I do feel like they like to push themselves a little more than the average people because of what they've been through. Um, but something like this, do you find that they're athletic people that they are adventuresome like you, or do you, or is it just another reason? I think it's, it's kind of across the, across the board. It's, um, we require people to be fun, adventurous, and not necessarily, they don't even have to be outgoing uh, because on the trip, they learn how to be outgoing. We've, we've had people on the trip who were anywhere from 13 to 70 years old. Uh, I, had, I took someone up from New York who she had never even been in a tent before. So wow. that was interesting. Um, I walked people through the gear list. In fact, I remember I, I told the group, you know, you, you have to get a down jacket or you can rent it over there. And she, she shows up with this, this down jacket, which is awesome, but it was white. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the trip, it feels dark brown because it's so dusty <laughs> up there, but anybody can go. It's just people who are willing to put in the work to, to reach a goal that will change their lives. And that I promise this trip will change your life forever. That is so incredible. I'm like, I'm thinking about, it. I can imagine telling my husband, <laughs> like what? We should go. Like I said, oh the, av- the average success rate on Kilimanjaro for all groups is 48%. We're at 98%. Incredible. And, and how long does it take to get up there? We, we so on the fifth night we go up for the summit we summit on the sixth day we come off the mountain on the seventh day and then we hop on a plane the day after and fly into the serengeti oh that has to be amazing oh it's unbelievable i mean it's, the hardest part about the serengeti is trying to realize and convince yourself that you're not looking at these animals in a zoo <laughs> are they really close to you we, we've had lions actually brush the car and jump up on the hood. Oh. And you're standing in like a, a, essentially like a Jeep where the lid, the top of the Jeep comes off. So you're standing up there and you can look around and, and see everything. So one of the crazy things is if, if you do see lions or the big cats and, and, you know, they start chasing you, you don't have to outrun the line. You just have to outrun the slowest person in the group. So tell me, you then decide you're going to do the South Pole, then the North Pole. And now, you know, True North is about the North Pole. Tell me a little bit about, 
you know, your experience there. I saw that you got emotional when you got up there and you had that huge, huge flag and I, I was crying. It was just amazing. It, there was, I mean, there were so many things that went into it. Um, going up to, to the North Pole and being in the Arctic Circle, it was the coldest I've ever been in my life. Uh, the, the hardest part was, was you, you have to really be aware of your body temperature. And there's a line from the, there's a line from the film where I, I say, if you sweat, you die. I mean, that's, it's just, that's just the truth. Because if you sweat, what would happen is it was so cold and say you stop, which you have to eventually, it would be so cold, the sweat would freeze on your shirt and you would freeze to death. So you have to really be aware the instant you start getting warm, which is what exactly what you want to do when it's 80 below zero, the instant you start getting warm, you have to either open up the layers or take layers off. So you have to pay attention to that. And another issue was with, with the hand warmers that we had. Um, we had trekking poles and like a sleeve that went over, you're almost like your whole forearm. And as you're moving, you're skiing forward, and there's moisture starts building up in your palm because, you know, I had like a couple of different hand warmers in there just, just so I could feel my fingertips, not to keep them warm, just so I could feel them. Moving forward and, and the moisture would then go on the inside of that shell that I just mentioned. And you don't really think about it, but when you stop, take your hands out of those shells, you back up onto your, your sled that you're pulling, sit down, unzip the front of it and start eating some snacks that you put in there. And then you go back and put your hands in those that sleeve again. And what happens is because that moisture was on the inside, now it's frozen. And it feels like you're sticking your hand back into a freezer. Ooh, that is one thing I don't love to be cold. <laughs> what advice would you give someone who is going through cancer and also when they're completed with treatment? It's probably the same advice know what your personal core values are because when things get tough which they will um you can hold on to those and know why you're doing what you're doing um, in fact with at, at the beginning of my journal that i showed you before i put together a um a core values assessment and i walk people through helping them get their personal core values to show them where they can start putting and focusing more attention so if anybody, if anybody's interested, send me an email. I will send you a digital version of it. Um, I would love to help out. Oh, but great. that would be my, my biggest piece of advice. Just know what matters most to you and focus on that. Because everyone's different. Everyone has a different perspective. So when somebody says, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that. Well, that might work for me. That might work for you. Find out and, and take bits and pieces of that because it might work for you, but know what works best for you because you're a unique individual. So just to, well, we're not going to quite end, but almost because we have to do the random round. But I wanted to ask you, where can people get more of you, find more of you? That's uh, SeanSwarner.com. And they can get all this information, the seven, the summit challenge program and all that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. So you're ready? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is? The ability to do as I wish 
without harming others to bring me happiness. The last show you binged and loved. <laughs> Shit's Creek. <laughs> <laughs> I love that too. Yeah. <laughs> when you're feeling afraid, what do you do? Take five deep breaths, close my eyes, listen for five things and pick out five things, five unique, different things that I could hear and focus on why I'm doing what I'm doing. If you could have a one hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? My grandpa. Your grandma? My grandpa. My grandma's oh, grandpa. Yeah, my grandma's going to be 99 in October. My grandpa passed away at 95, and I would just love to spend <clears throat> love to spend some more time with him. Oh. Yeah, my grandparents were just incredible. That's who I would pick, one of my grandparents. What is your favorite go-to snack? Ooh, probably wasabi almonds. Ooh. Yeah. I'm going to have to try that. <laughs> I've never had those. I've had the peas, but not that. What's one simple thing that brings you joy? One simple thing that brings me joy. One simple thing that brings me joy. Connecting with other like-minded individuals. What's on your nightstand? <laughs> I'm trying to look through the wall so I can see. Um, an alarm clock. And there's a book about how to be um, the best influencer you can be. What's your favorite form of exercise? Besides climbing mountains. <laughs> yeah. I, I love running because I get outdoors hiking but that doesn't count because you said that and we just got a uh, a rowing machine so i'm just getting into that so i still love running them great what's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now i'm grateful for the fact that i can connect with people at least digitally yeah you know, that's not taken away and I, I i am grateful for the fact that I am allowing other people to, to change my life and open my mind to bigger and better things. You are such a joy. I cannot thank you enough for being on. And I hope we stay in touch because I feel like I feel like I know you, even <laughs> though we've just met digitally. I mean, we've known each other for a while digitally. Yeah, I, I, I'm super grateful for this as well. And and. I do get back to, to Ohio every once in a while. And when I do, I always go to Cedar Point. So maybe we'll get to go to Cedar Point. I would love that so much. Do you promise you'll reach out to me? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you so, so much. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.